At the end of our time together last week in the book of Exodus, we left Moses up on the mountain. He had just begun to make his way up again to speak to God, and he was going to spend 40 days up there. And the Lord was going to instruct him and teach him, and he was going to give him a blueprint for the very building that was going to represent his presence with his own people. And if you're visiting or maybe you're relatively new to church, you might be looking at this and wondering, what is this guy thinking? We're going to cover 15 chapters of an Old Testament book that is filled with nothing but the description of the architecture of a tent in the wilderness for a religion that he doesn't even believe. Now, that's a fair concern. And, and maybe you're hoping I was going to pray again so that you'd have an opportunity to sneak out. And maybe you've read ahead and you're, you're thinking, oh man, this is going to be one of those sermons about giving. He's going to use this text to tell me I should be giving more money to the church. Well, I want to allay your concerns this morning. What I believe you're going to see instead is that when Moses comes down from that mountain, he reveals something to us that is getting at the very deepest need of every human soul, the very deepest longing that we have, the place from which all of our insecurities arise. Even, I would argue, the place from which many of our temptations and much of our coveting and even our patterns of sin come from. And that is, is this situation that we're in, and we're we're, we're born into it. It's built into us. And it's the knowledge that God is holy and we are not. And this goes all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and they covered themselves and they hid from God. And in the original garden, in the original relationship between God and his creation, there was this perfect dwelling of God with his people, his people with him, and there was open fellowship and that was all destroyed when sin came into the world. And every single person has been battling that reality ever since. And what we're going to look at this morning is an old covenant depiction of the promise of Yahweh that he will dwell among his people. And it's going to give us great hope because when we know what we know about the new covenant is that in the end, not only does he dwell with us, but he dwells in us. And so if you have your Bibles, open them to Exodus chapter 25. And the main argument from Exodus 25 all the way through the end of the book is that God's presence brings peace. We to sum it all up, it's that. God's presence is what brings peace. Now, for the first opening chapters of this particular book, what we're going to see is that Moses is turning his attention to what it is that God revealed to him when he was on the mountain. He's writing this after these events have occurred. He's writing it looking back as a history for the people. And, and so in chapter 25, down through about chapter 27, he begins by revealing what it is that God wants him to do in terms of building a place for his presence to dwell. And what he does is he brings Moses up to the mountain and he meets with him personally. And he lays out for him the plans. And God himself shows his architectural drawings, his artistic desires for what this place was going to look like, what it was going to do, how it was going to function, who was going to look after it, what it all meant, what did it point to. And he gives Moses all of this in vivid detail, and then Moses writes it down. Now, if you were to tell somebody that you had a dream to build a home, and they came to your office and they asked to look at the plans, the first thing that you would show them likely would not be the bedroom furniture. 
It's very hard to get an idea of what your dream home is going to look like by starting with the furnishings. But that's exactly what God does. Because you see, in this house, what's most important is the very box that contains the handwritten covenant that he's made with his people and how it reflects and represents his very presence and image. It's him in the center of his house. And that's why at the very beginning he starts by telling us about the Ark of the Testimony and about the mercy seat. And all of these things that are going to be built and crafted are to be done in a beautiful way. God is not interested in going and doing the cheapest thing he can. He didn't tell Moses to go to some Egyptian Ikea and get together whatever he could because you know what, it's all about being frugal and good stewards and so we're just going to throw together just the basics of what we need. It doesn't have to look nice. It'll just serve its purpose. No, he says, I want you to build this using the finest woods, the finest gold, the finest silver, the finest tapestry and skins and furs, and it is going to stand out as a glorious place, a sacred space set apart for the worship of God and for the presence of God among his people. And so he does begin in chapter 25 by taking a collection. But you'll notice if you were to study that in more detail that it was a voluntary collection. Moses goes out among the people and he says, whoever is moved to give towards this. And they give voluntarily and they give a portion of what they have. And don't forget, whatever they had, they had because God gave it to them while they pillaged the Egyptians during the Exodus. And God says, just give me a portion. Whatever you're moved to give voluntarily in order that these particular pieces of furnishing that this tent might be built for my glory. And the people do, and they come forward, and they provide everything that is needed. And the beginning of the story is with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark that holds those tablets of stone. And it wasn't very large. It was actually a relatively small Ark. An Ark just means a box. It was made of wood, and there was gold inside and out. And there was a solid gold lid on top. And it was called the mercy seat. And on either side of this mercy seat, there were these cherubim. There were these angels. And the angels faced one another. And their wings came over together on top of that mercy seat. And God says, it is there that I will meet with you. It is there that I will talk with you. It is there that my glory and presence will dwell. Now, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to bring to our minds what happened in the end of the Gospel of John, when Mary is staring in at the tomb where Jesus had resurrected and left, and she sees inside on that slab where Jesus' body used to be, two angels, one at the head, one at the foot, representing, as it were, a mercy seat, this very place, not where the blood of an animal had been sprinkled for atonement, but where the very body of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb, had been laid. And now he is raised and he is gone, and it is proof that there is no more need for sacrifices ever again to be offered up to God. But beyond this, he moves on and he says that over in the one side of the wall, you're going to have something called a table for the bread. Uh, This was a golden table that was made, and on this table was laid 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the tribes of Israel, and it represented the provision of God in the wilderness. I took you out into a place where there was no food, and I fed you. And every week that bread would be refreshed with new loaves, and the other loaves would be eaten by the priests. And on the other side of the room, there was going to be a golden lampstand, and that golden lampstand had seven places for golden lamps, and every day that would be lit and tended to by the priests who were inside that room. And the reason was it was to give light inside because it was dark, there were no windows. And so once he had created in his mind and then communicated to Moses the ark and the mercy seat, the cherubim on that, You then move out and you've got this table for the bread, which would be on the north side of the wall, the golden lampstand on the south side. He then backs up and he says, now we're going to build something around it. I've shown you the most important part where I'm going to be. Then I've shown you these furnishings that are going to be used. Now we're going to put some walls around this. Now I know sometimes we talk about the tabernacle as being the tent, 
But really what it was, was it was a walled structure with a fabric roof. And the reason why this is important is because it wasn't just some floppy thing that could be blown around. This was a rather substantial structure. Uh, These walls were several inches thick, and they were on three sides, and they were held together by rods of wood covered in gold that ran through these loops on the outside of the walls. It was a very strong structure, and so when you think about it, think about it more as this wooden structure covered with gold held together by these wooden poles with columns on the inside to make some separations of rooms. The first set of columns separated the holy place from what's called the holy of holies, the most holy place. And there was to be a veil that would separate that most holy place from the other holy place. The holy of holies is where that Ark of the Covenant was. And it was alone in that room. And it too had these poles on either side of it made of wood covered in gold, but they remained permanently fixed on, on that box so it could be moved properly by the priest when the time came. Outside of that veil, you had the other furnishings that we talked about earlier. And then on top, you had four layers of covering. It's very interesting. The first layer was a, a layer of linen. And then you had goat's hair on top of that. And then you had ram's hair on top of that. And then on top of that, you had another covering. And each of them were of roughly the same dimension, but they were held down with poles. And they were folded over at the front so you could enter. And they were slanted down at the back. And that very top portion, the translations choose different words from time to time, but it's actually an accurate translation to use the the term porpoise skin. That might seem interesting. First of all, you might be asking, where are they getting porpoise skin from? I mean, that's not what you would expect people to have when they're out in the desert. You might expect them to have gold, silver, you might expect them to have linen and other fabrics, but very few people would have recently skinned a dolphin. But that's exactly what this is, and and what you come to realize is that actually in and around Egypt, in the waters around Egypt, there are actually, uh, even to this very day, 20 species of large animals, like a porpoise or a manatee or a dolphin. And it was actually quite common to use the skins for these animals as coverings because they were naturally waterproof and they even provided insulation from the heat. And so what you had on the very top of this tent, on top of this wooden structure, were these four layers of tapestry covering. And so Moses gives in great detail what God had revealed to him. And the reason for all of this is Simply put this way, if you're looking for a simple outline, why does all this matter? Because what God is going to reveal to Moses is that that tabernacle is his presence, that with his presence comes peace. And the way that you're going to be able to understand that you have peace with God is that you're going to view him in three different ways in this section. We're going to see that Yahweh is for us, that Yahweh is against us, and that Yahweh is with us. So three ways to break down this long section of text. Yahweh is... For us, Yahweh is against us, and Yahweh is with us. Well, we've been looking through here at that first section of Yahweh being for us, and by that, what I mean is that he is willing to provide something that would be an adequate place for him to dwell among his people. After he's talked about the ark and the table and the lampstand and the tabernacle itself, he then moves outside of that tent, and he talks about where the sacrifices are going to be offered, and this is on a large bronze altar. It was a big box with a screen halfway down, and they would put the animals on top of that, and they would be burned. And that was a sacrifice that was offered to God. It was being done by the priests. Outside of that bronze altar, then, you have this larger courtyard, and he goes on to describe what that was like as well. And this is much larger. It's like a fabric fence with wooden poles that would cover the entire area where the priests would do their ministry. And inside of that larger curtained-off area, you had the tabernacle. Just outside the tabernacle, you had this bronze altar. And between the bronze altar and the tabernacle, you had a bronze wash basin, which we'll talk about in a moment. But before we do that, you'll notice that in chapter 28 and 29, the author spends the entire chapters talking about the priesthood, talking about those who would serve inside of this area. 
And what he does is he begins by talking about what they're going to wear. And remember, Aaron was the high priest and his sons would serve along with him. And every aspect of this uniform that they would wear was meant to demonstrate not only God's great care in how he helps people come before him, but also his concern for beauty. It was meant to be beautiful. It was meant to be something that made them stand apart. Even today, some religious leaders like to dress in such a way as to make themselves stand out from the people, as opposed to what the Lord did, which is just to dress like everybody else. But in the Old Covenant, there was something about this that was separating the people. In fact, the Old Covenant was designed to constantly remind you that there is a separation between you and God, and you need special people that have been set apart by God to go between you and God. And many world religions today continue to set up man, usually dress them up and put them in a place between you and God. You've got to go between, uh, you've got to use them as a go-between. You've got to have them as priests. You've got to have them as mediators. You see, the New Testament, the New Covenant revealed to us that we all approach God equally and with equal access through the one sacrifice of Christ. But in the Old Covenant, it was different. And they were dressed in such a way that it, they made them stand out. And they had these beautiful garments. And for the high priest, he also had something called an umim and thumim. Uh, this was uh, something that was basically put over the outside of his garments. From what we can gather, it was 12 stones that were sewn into this piece that he would wear. And somehow, through that, God would reveal his will and his judgment. That through that high priest, who happened to be Aaron, God would reveal his will. We don't know exactly what happened. Maybe some of the stones lit up or they changed color or something made an indication that this was God's will, but he would wear this. He also had a turban on his head, and he would go and, and he would make the offering of the sacrifices on behalf of the people. But you'll notice before he was able to do his work, in chapter 29, they had to be ordained. They had to be set apart and consecrated. And so God says, I want you to bring a bull, and I want you to sacrifice that bull, and I want you to take some of the blood, and you're going to put it on the horns of this altar, this big bronze altar had these horns that went up on each corner, and the, the horns would not only, in a sense, hold everything in place, but they would also be that symbol of power and strength in that culture. And you put blood on those horns, and you throw blood at the base of the altar because this was going to be an altar of blood. This is where animals would bleed and die for the sins of the people. And he told them to cut out certain parts of that animal certain fatty parts and lobes and organs, and those are what you burned completely on the altar as a way of a sacrifice to God, and the rest of it you took outside the camp and you burned it. And then there were a couple of rams, and, and one of them would be sacrificed. And they would take the blood and they would put some of it on the, the ear and on the thumb of the priest. And what that symbolized is that the priest would be the one who hears from God, and the priest would be the one who does the works on God's behalf for the people. And so after you've got the priests consecrated, they were able to offer a sacrifice not only for themselves, but also as a way of indicating that they would be the ones who would be doing this for the people. And by the way, some of the meat that was sacrificed there on the altar every time people made a sacrifice was given to the priest. It was one of the ways that they were fed and cared for. But then God says, and by the way, every day there will be a sacrifice on this altar. Every morning and every evening there will be a lamb. Every morning and every evening, there will be a sacrifice made to me for the sins of the people. Every day, only the priests would be able to enter into that larger area that was curtained off. And then only one would be able to go into the holy place where he would relight uh, re the lamps that were on the lampstand. But then only one priest one time a year would be able to go into the Holy of Holies inside that veil where on one day a year, the Day of Atonement, he would bring the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and that would atone for the sins of the people. Well, now that we've got the structure more or less built, Moses tells us in, verse, in chapter 30 and 31 that there's a few remaining pieces. For example, one of the most important ones in chapter 30 is the altar of incense. This was a small little altar, 18 inches by 18 inches, and on it, 
you would burn every day a special recipe of incense. Now, you've all seen incense. It's that powdery stuff that you burn. Sometimes it's in the form of a little stick that you light the end and the smoke comes off, and it just keeps burning and burning. There's no flame, but there's smoke. And so what they would do is they would create this incense, and they would do a special formula, a special recipe, and they would put it together, and on top of that, they would place one of the hot coals from the altar. And that would slowly burn that incense, and the smoke would rise up. Now remember, you've got a building here which is made of wooden walls, and there's a fabric tent on top. So there's not a lot of air circulation, not a lot of natural light. That smoke would essentially fill up that little tent area. And it was meant to symbolize the prayers of the people. And in fact, later on in the architecture of the temple, Solomon designs it in such a way that there are some places for air to flow. And so what happens is the smoke would come off of that altar of incense and it would drift down towards the veil and the circulation would bring it down and under the veil, as it were, and up into the very presence of God. You see, this was meant to symbolize the prayers of the people constantly going up before God. Now, in order to provide for everything, they had a tax that they were charged once a year. Chapter 30, verses 11 to 16 talk about that. This didn't go away, as most taxes don't go away. In fact, this is the one that in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus pays. Remember, they ask his disciples, well, does Jesus pay the temple tax? And he says to them, all right, well, even though this temple is me, this temple is for me, I shouldn't have to pay the tax, but you know what? I'm not going to you know, be offensive, so hey, go down to the river, catch a fish, and open it up, and sure enough, what's in there? A shekel. The temple tax was still half a shekel. This was hundreds of years later, so at least inflation wasn't a problem. It was still half a shekel, and that's why Jesus says here, there's enough for you and me in there. Go ahead and pay the bill. But this was gathered every year. It was a very small amount gathered every year from everybody. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you all paid the same amount. And that is a tax that paid in order to cover all the costs associated with the regular worship of the people. Now, there's another piece of furniture. I talked about it earlier, the bronze laver or the bronze basin. And this was between the, the altar that you burned the sacrifices on and the actual tent itself. And it was used for the ceremonial washing of the priests. They would wash their hands and wash their feet before they offered sacrifices to God. For the rest of chapter 30, we learn the recipes for the anointing oils and the incense, and they are warned that this is for God, it's not for you. You're not allowed to duplicate this and wear it as a perfume. You're not allowed to burn it in your home. It is separated, it is sacred, it is only for God. Chapter 31 introduces us to two individuals who are going to be filled by the Holy Spirit in order to construct everything. And then in chapter 31, 12 to 18, there is a reminder of the Sabbath the never-ending reminder of that sanctified and blessed seventh day of creation. And God takes all of these rules and once again writes them down on these tablets of stone. And he gives all the other instructions to Moses over these 40 days. And you might say as the day comes to an end after these 40 days of learning from God that things are going pretty well for the people. As a matter of fact, this, this would be really an example of God being for us. Moses has been up there. He's been communing with God. He's been enjoying that fellowship. He's been getting very specific instructions. He now has this beautiful picture of what he's going to build. There's going to be this beautiful golden box that contains the testimony of God's covenant with his people, a mercy seat where their sins are atoned for. Outside, there's going to be a table reminding them of his constant provision in the wilderness and the bread. There's going to be a lampstand lighting up this golden room. Just outside of this, there's going to be this golden box covered by these beautiful ornate tapestries with pictures of angels. Notice there's no pictures of God because it would be a violation of the commandment to have pictures of God. You don't need pictures of God in your place of worship. But outside, there was going to be this big bronze altar and this bronze basin for washing, beautiful curtains surrounding it, an opportunity for it to be opened once in a while that the people who aren't the priests might be able to look in and see this place where God's glory is going to dwell. Everything was set up. Everything was perfect. And Moses is ready to come back down the mountain and to apply all these things for the people. 
to remind them that God will be in their midst and he will be for them. But then something dramatic and tragic occurs. We're going to spend a little more time going through this section in detail. Turn to chapter 32. This is when it goes from a good situation to a very bad one very quickly. Because while Moses was up talking to God and getting all of these instructions about the tabernacle, the people were down in the valley and they were getting impatient. Moses, their 80-year-old leader, had been up on the mountain for a long time and he didn't appear to be coming back. And so because they were impatient, because they wanted to get going, because they wanted to get to that promised land, because they wanted to get all the things that God had promised them. They wanted all the goods. They wanted all the benefits. They wanted all of the, the riches. They wanted the milk and honey. They wanted that land. They wanted their freedom. They were ready. They were excited. They couldn't wait to get going. And in their impatience, when Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together and they went to Aaron. Aaron was the one left behind Aaron was the guy who was supposed to deal with the people while Moses was gone. And while Moses is up there getting instructions on how to build Aaron's uniform, Aaron is down in the valley taking instructions from the people. And the people come up to him and they say this, up. People come to the leader who is in charge of maintaining order and they take over. They say, get up. It's time to get up. It's time to get going. Enough waiting. This isn't happening fast enough. Where's Moses? He's not coming back. Make us gods who shall go before us. If Yahweh's not going to go before us and Moses won't go before us, at least let's get some gods to go before us. We learned that in Egypt. And they go after him. As for this Moses, they say, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, God forbid that you ever be impatient with Yahweh. No, it's not what he said. Aaron said to them, all right, Aaron in a moment of weakness, Aaron in capitulation, Aaron as, as, as sort of a middle ground who says we must remain loyal to Yahweh, but if I hold the line, these people are going to kill me. What do I do? And so Aaron does what all weak leaders do, and they compromise. They find a middle ground. They find some way of combining what the people want and what God wants. And so he comes back to them and he says, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Remember, they'd all gotten these gold, this gold jewelry when they left Egypt, and he says, take them off and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And as you know, he took them and he fashioned them into a golden calf. And when the golden calf was built, notice very clearly in verse 4, they said, I don't think this was Aaron who said it, I think they said, the people said, they rejoiced, they said, finally, to the rest of Israel, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, when Aaron saw what had happened, when Aaron realized the foolishness of his decision, he sweeps in and he does something, but it's like arriving just after the nick of time. It's too little, too late. But what he does is he says, you need to worship Yahweh. And so he builds an altar before it in front of these idols. And it's like he's trying to intervene, trying to save this last minute ditch effort. And he builds this altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh. We're going to make a feast to Yahweh tomorrow. And so the people rose up early the next day. And maybe it appeared as though they had changed their mind. And so they offered the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. There's no indication that this was to those false gods. This was them doing what they were supposed to do. This is what Aaron instructed them to do. But notice their hearts had turned from God. And their passions and their wickedness had taken control, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's a word for fornication. It's a word for debauchery. Now, this didn't work. The, the effort last minute to maybe re-divert them back to Yahweh failed. Now they've 
defiled themselves, not only in creating false gods, but they have also gotten together and they have eaten and they have drunk and now they have engaged in all kinds of wicked, idolatrous fornication. And Yahweh said to Moses, still up on the mountain, he says to Moses, after he's given him all of these instructions about the glorious tabernacle, he says, go down, for your people have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the word of God. Verse 9, and Yahweh says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that in my wrath I may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. And, and in this fascinating middle section, where it is literally God against us, God positioning himself towards the people who were engaged in that idolatry and fornication with the same intent towards them as he has towards every person today who is not a believer. The very same wrath of God aiming down at those people is the wrath of God that is aiming down at you today if you have not put your faith in Christ. And Moses steps in, and instead of saying, good idea, I'm sick of these people myself. <laughs> good idea, make a nation out of me. He intercedes for them. He mediates for them. He becomes a mediator for the people, and he says to God, if you do that, then you are going to bring shame to your own name among the Egyptians, because the Egyptians said, you came and you wiped out their gods and their army so that you could be the one who delivers these people. If you go and kill them all, then they're going to lose any confidence that you are the one true living God. And furthermore, you made a promise. You made a promise to Abraham. Do you see how strong the covenant of God is? Moses is able to look at God in the face and he is able to say to God, in boldness, you made a covenant with Abraham and his people, and therefore, that covenant needs to be upheld. He says in verse 13, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and you said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And so Yahweh relented. He said, okay, we're not going to wipe them off the face of the earth. But then you'll notice that as Moses goes down from the mountain, along with his assistant Joshua, they begin to hear a sound from down in the valley. And verse 18 says, it is not the sound of victory or the sound of defeat, it is the sound of singing that I hear. It's the same word repeated over and over again. It's not singing for victory or singing because of defeat. It's just singing. It's the revelry. It's the dancing. It's the idolatrous worship. And they can hear it coming up from the ground in the valley. And as soon as they came near the camp, verse 19, and they saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. You see, he's telling the people that, Yahweh's made a covenant with you, and you have just shattered the covenant. You have broken your part of the covenant. You have destroyed this relationship. You have now invited upon yourself his wrath. And he comes down in his anger, and he goes looking for someone. He goes looking for Aaron. And Moses gets right up in Aaron's face, his older brother, the high priest, the one who was left in charge, the one who was the spokesman, the one who had the ability to, to, to talk very, to talk well, the one who was able to, to be the preacher, as it were, the, the one who was known by everybody, the one who was able to go before God and offer the sacrifices, the one who had the uniform, the one who was separated from everybody else. He goes up to that very leader. That's the guy that he gets right up in his face, and he says, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? He blames Aaron. What have they done to you to make you so stupid that you would do this to them? You've given them the ability and the license. You've given them an opportunity to put themselves in the very crosshairs of the wrath of the God of the universe. 
And instead of protecting them, instead of shepherding them, you became complicit in it. Well, somebody's going to need to pay for this. And so Moses begins by dealing with the people. And he takes that golden calf and he grinds it down to powder and he throws it in the water and he makes them drink it. He says, we're going to destroy this and we're going to make you consume it. We're going to make you realize the extent of your error. You're going to drink your error. We're going to make this very vivid to you to show that you were complicit in it, to show that you meant to do it, to show that you were part of it. This was your idea. You're going to drink this thing down. It's your cup. You're going to drink it. And then he calls together everybody who was on the Lord's side. And the Levites came forward. And and we don't know exactly, but it's likely that more than just Levites would have agreed to side with the Lord. My guess is that the Levites were already set apart as the ones responsible for the religious services. The Levites come forward and they say, we're on your side. And so he says, then take your sword and kill everyone who's not. And it's the Levites who went out likely into the tribe of Levi. And they're the ones who put to death the people who are responsible for this golden calf incident. And that's why I think Moses tells them when they gather back together again, and these 3,000 men fell and died by the sword, he says to these Levites today, you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. You've been set apart. This was your ordination, you guys. This, this, was your, uh, this is your final exam in seminary. And you've now been ordained, set apart for this ministry of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother. I think you had Levites going into their own tribal area and putting to death their own sons and their own brothers who were engaged in this idolatry. God is purifying not only his camp, but he's purifying his ministers so that, he says, he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Well, Moses isn't done. So he goes up before the Lord and he says to the people, you have sinned this great sin, verse 30, so I'm going to go up and I'm going to go to Yahweh. And he says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. The last thing you want to hear when somebody is going to make atonement for your sin is the word perhaps. But I don't think Moses even knows at this point. Moses has come down. He's shattered the tablets. He's shattered the covenant. He doesn't know what Yahweh's going to do. Moses hadn't read Exodus. Moses didn't know what Yahweh was going to do. He'd only been familiar with him for a few decades. And so he goes back up. And essentially what he does is he aims to make an atonement. So Moses returned, verse 31, to Yahweh. He said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin, and they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and he pauses, he kind of leaves open an opportunity. He doesn't know that it's even going to work. He just says, But if, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. Now, I want you to understand what this means very clearly. It doesn't mean that your name can be blotted out of the book of life. It's not talking about the book of life. In the old days, they would keep a register, a census of everybody who was in that community, and they would write your name in a book. And when you died, because there was no delete button, there was no way to erase it, they wouldn't try that way. They would blot the name out. They would take a bunch of ink, and they would just blot the name out. That meant you were gone. It meant to kill you. It is a false teaching. It is a satanic false teaching to say that you can lose your salvation. Because God is crystal clear in the scriptures, everywhere from start to finish, that he wrote your name in the book of life before the foundation of the world, and he chose you. And every single one whom he has chosen will be redeemed and will be redeemed forever. So this only means that their names would be blotted out. They would be killed. And, and Moses is kind of putting himself forward maybe as, a, as a, an atonement. He says, if you've got to kill somebody, kill me. And God, in his mercy, looks at Moses and says, thanks, but you're not nearly enough. <laughs> kill me instead of these two million. And God's like, um, Moses, you need to be humbled you got nothing to offer, man. You're only going to die for your own sin. 
Somebody much greater than you needs to come along. And so what he says is, I'm going to blot them out of the book. I am going to bring this curse upon the people. Look at verse 35. A plague comes upon the people because of the calf. God says, I'm going to continue to do my work of purging. And I will only leave those who are for me. Chapter 33, so Yahweh said to Moses, now depart. Go up from here. You can go into the land. You're going to have everything I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your offspring is going to inherit it. I'm going to send a messenger before you, an angel before you. I'm going to drive out all the Canaanites. I'm going to give you this land full of milk and honey. I'm going to give you everything that I promised, but here's the only condition. On account of all this, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. He says to Moses, you know what? I'm going to be faithful to my covenant. I'm going to do everything I said I'd do. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the goods. I'm going to defeat your enemies. But uh, I'm not going to go with you. Because if I go with you, I'm going to consume you. Because I'm holy and you guys are not. So you guys go ahead. You get everything you wanted. You're just not going to get me. And you know what? I think today a lot of people would say, that sounds like an excellent option. Thank you very much. Because even people who claim to be Christians today more or less live that way. I want everything that God has promised me. I want all the goods. I want the the glory. I want the eternal security. I want to know for sure that I'm going to enjoy pleasures, endless pleasures in the new heavens and the new earth. But the, the main problem is that it gets very inconvenient when he shows up and makes these demands on my life. I think that today, if you were to offer that to people, you can get a whole room full of takers. I mean, you could just fill this aisle with people coming forward. You get all kinds of decisions for Christ. But you know what Moses does instead? Look, the response. It's not good news. It's the worst news possible. When the people heard that, they called it a disastrous word, verse 4, and they mourned. It's a disastrous word. And notice what they did as a sign of their repentance. They took off all the ornaments You know, I think in some ways they were still walking around with all those ornaments, all that gold and stuff that they had taken from Egypt. Some of it they had given to make the golden calf, but they didn't need that much. They still had plenty. They're still walking around with all their rewards, all their prizes, all their ribbons. They were so proud of themselves. Look what we did. We wiped out all the Egyptian gods. We wiped out the Egyptian army. And look, I even got these cool earrings out of it. And they're covered in their necklaces and their earrings and their crowns and their bracelets and their anklets and their toe rings. And they got all of this gold and jewelry. And God comes back and he says, you know what? It was that stuff that reminds you of the pagan worship I rescued you out of. It's that stuff. It's clinging on to that old world that you were a part of. That's what's making you go back there. That's why you keep whining about not being back in Egypt. And God says, if I'm going to go with you, strip off all that stuff. Get rid of it. And I'm not trying to make a crazy leap here, but in much of the Christian life today, your repentance begins with a stripping off of the worldly things that you keep close enough at hand to keep falling into. It's just right there, and when temptation overtakes you, you're engaged once again in this sin. And there's a principle here that's universal and transcendent. Get rid of it. Throw it away. And it says, from this day forward, as a demonstration of their true repentance, they no longer wore their ornaments. Verse 6, therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward, from Mount Sinai onward. Where are they going to get all the material to build the tabernacle so that they could actually have a place where they could worship the one true living God? It's going to come from all this stuff from Egypt that they've stripped off and stopped admiring and given all to the Lord because it's for him that it's all meant to bring glory. So, the tent of meeting in verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp. Let me tell you how this worked. Moses would go outside the camp and he would have his own little tent and it is there that he would meet with God. God's glory would come down in the presence of the cloud and all the people would stand at the door of their tent and they would look to see if God's presence was going to arrive and when it did, they would bow down and worship. That was the indication that God was still with them. And Moses goes out there to meet with God and to talk to them. And he engages once again in intercession. Look at chapter 33 and verse 12. And so Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people 
but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. What Moses really wants to know is that he can have the presence of God. Because when you have the presence of God, you have peace. When you have the presence of God, you have eternal, perfect joy. And so when he comes before the Lord at this point in this chapter, he is saying, I desperately want to know how to obtain your presence. But his presence is not enough. Chapter 33, 18 begins one of the most extraordinary requests in all the pages of Scripture. He says, not only do I want you to be with me and with us, but verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And once again, God responds essentially, no. Moses, you're not enough to provide atonement for these people. And Moses, you could not stand to see my glory. I would incinerate you. He says, you don't even know what you're asking. He says, I want you to to reveal your glory to me. He says, it's not just about the stuff anymore. I want to know you. I want to know the glory of you. It's the sense of awe and wonder. I want more of that. And so God says, in a sense, to appease Moses. He says, I will show you my glory, but it will come through what I declare and I will send my presence with you. He says, I'm going to show you my essential beauty. I'm going to show you my essential glory. I'm going to let it pass by you, but verse 20, you're not going to be able to see my face because I would consume you. And so verse 1 through 9 of chapter 34 brings us to probably the heart of the entire book. It says this, And Yahweh said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. And he doesn't let anybody else come up. And he cuts the tablets of stone and he brings them up. And the Lord comes down in the cloud. And the Lord puts him in a cave in the rock and he covers him up and he passes by him. In verse 6, he proclaims, Yahweh, Yahweh a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. Wow. God says, I'm gonna show you my glory. But my glory comes to you as a testimony of who I am and a testimony that I am perfectly gracious, but I'm also perfectly just. And here's the problem. You can't be both. God says to Moses, I'm both. And even Moses would have known, well, you can't be abounding in grace and love and mercy and inflicting wrath and judgment on the guilty. You can't be merciful and just. And it's that tension that everyone's going to live with until the Lord Jesus Christ comes because he came, truly God, truly man, able to bear in himself the full wrath of God and satisfy his justice and his need for a sacrifice and at the same time able to then bestow upon everyone who would put their faith in him his perfect righteousness. That's the gospel. Exodus looks forward to the gospel. The gospel is how Jesus Christ fulfilled the statement Yahweh just made about his own character. That is how in 1 John 1, 9, he can be faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Faithful means that he can do it according to his divine law. Faithful meaning that he will do it no matter what because he's gracious, but also just, meaning that he's not going to diminish the standard at all because the standard has been met in Christ. Chapter 34, beginning in verse 10, God renews the covenant now. He reissues everything that he had explained to him earlier the first time he was up on the mountain. 
He renews the covenantal bond. He reminds him there will be victory over the nations. And Moses comes down with his tablet of stone, the new tablets of stone in his hand, but he's also coming down with something a little bit more than that. He's coming down with the very glory of God shining in his face. You know, that word um, shone, it's a word translated elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures as horns. He's got these, uh, these glory horns, as it were, coming out of his head. Something that he can't see, but everyone else can. And, and, and it represents the very glory of God, and he's been in his presence, and it's this majestic thing, and people realize he really is speaking for God. And they were visible. I mean, this, this is why Michelangelo, in his famous sculpture of Moses, carves him with horns. And so what Moses would do is he would, he would cover himself up most of the time unless he was declaring God's word to the people or he was meeting with God himself. You see, God is for us by giving us a way to ensure his presence. God is against us when we reject his law and turn from him. But God is also with us. And that's the third section in chapter 35 to 40. God is with us. We can be very brief about this because it's just saying that everything that they said that they would do, they did. Chapter 35, 1 to 3 is a, a reiteration of the Sabbath. Then the men and women in the rest of that chapter and following are moved by God to bring their gold, their silver, their fabrics to make this tent. Now they realize that they're having a, a second chance, another opportunity that they are able now to come to God through this tabernacle and they want to make sure it gets built. And so they provide an abundance of everything that's needed. Sure enough, the man that was set apart, Bezalel, to do the work, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he does exactly that. He builds the ark and the table and the lampstand and the altar and the altar of burnt offering, the bronze basin, the courtyard, all of that in chapter 37 through 38. Then in chapter 39, the priestly garments are made, and everything that was supposed to be made has been made. The ark and the table and the lampstand, the bronze altar and the bronze wash basin, the altar of incense, all the fabrics and tapestries, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the veil that separated the opening of the tabernacle, the cloth tent, or the, the wall that was around it. Everything is built, everything is ready. All of the priests have been robed up in their garments. Chapter 39, 42 to 43 says, According to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. And as Yahweh had commanded, so that they had done it, then Moses blessed them. Chapter 40 wraps up the book, wraps up the scene. And there's one particular verse that stood out to me. Chapter 40, verse 33. Moses is surveying all of the work, blesses the people for obeying the Lord in it. But in chapter 40, in verse 33, the very last section of that verse says, so, min so Moses finished the work. He says, it is finished. But we know that it isn't really finished. It wouldn't really be finished until one came who said, it is finished when everything that this pointed to was finally fulfilled on the cross. It says there at the end in chapter 40, verses 34 to 38, that the glory of Yahweh comes down and that it so fills the tabernacle, it so fills the tent of meeting that there's no way for people to enter it. That for a time, his glory was so powerful and so present that it was almost like a force that they couldn't even get close to it. He was overwhelming them. And then, as a result of this, their faithfulness turned away from Egypt and onto God, at least for now, and they began to follow him. And this tabernacle was the sign of his presence with them through all of their wilderness journeys. Now, this tabernacle, as we've studied it today, isn't something that we just need to understand as a historical artifact. This tabernacle only matters, this story only matters, because in the New Covenant we see the greater tabernacle. Tonight, the Jews begin Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. They continue to have a, an annual holiday 
where they look forward to the very sacrifice who already came 2,000 years ago. In fact, tonight, the Jews will fast, but the Christians will feast. Because we know that that lamb has already been provided and that the atonement has already been made and that forgiveness can be found in Christ and that it requires no ceremony, that it only requires, as we sung earlier today, for you to know your need of him and to come in faith. John 1, 14 to 17 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt. It's literally the word tabernacled. Same word in the Greek. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In Matthew 1, 22 to 23, we read, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus said that this temple that we're talking about here doesn't matter because this temple has served its purpose. It's all going to fade away. I'm here now and I'm going to offer the sacrifice. He says in Matthew 26, 61, at his trial, somebody came and accused him of this. This was the charge that they were going to bring against him. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. It's because he was talking about himself. I am the temple. And then in Matthew 27, 40, Somebody mocking him on the cross. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But he said to that man what he said to Moses, which is, no. I'm not going to come down until it is finished. And when he said it is finished, that veil was torn in two. That temple became utterly pointless. By A.D. 70, it had been destroyed There's no longer a need for a temple, no longer a need for a tabernacle, because everything in glory that it pictured has now been fulfilled in Christ. You look at the Ark of the Covenant, Hebrews 9, 23 to 26, talks about Christ being the place for atonement. The table that had the bread, Christ said in John 6 that I am the bread of life. The lampstand, he said in John 8 that I am the light of the world. The altar of incense, which symbolized the prayers going up before God. Hebrews 7.25 says he lives now to make intercession for us. The altar of the burnt offering. Hebrews 10.10 says it was his body that was sacrificed once and for all. The bronze basin. He says in Titus 3.5 that it is his Holy Spirit that brings the washing, not of the hands and feet, but the washing of regeneration. The very outer court described in chapter 38, 9 through 20, is that very heavenly court that Christ now is able to enter and to walk into. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as the high priest for the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Brothers and sisters, The great delight in studying the tabernacle is that we see how it all pointed to the Messiah. Now, in case you're wondering where we're going to go next after finishing the book of Exodus, in case you're looking at the next page and thinking, is he going to preach through Leviticus? (laughs) That tabernacle, that tent, that at the end of Exodus says, went with the Jews all the way through their wanderings. Those journeys would continue all the way through the conquest, and eventually that tabernacle would be set up, and it would spend 369 years in one location. And that place was called Shiloh. And it's there at that place in Shiloh that we meet a desperate young woman named Hannah. And with her story begins the story of Samuel and David and Solomon 
and everything leading up to the greater David who is Christ. And so beginning next week, we're going to start a series through the book of 1 Samuel. And between 1 and 2 Samuel, it'll take us all the way up till about Christmas time where we'll begin, Lord willing, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to see how all of this was pointing to the greater David, the Christ who would come. And if I can stay on track, we'll be ending the book of Matthew right around the time of Easter where we get to celebrate the account of his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. And even though it's been a long sermon this morning and we've covered a lot of text, I know that we've only begun to scratch the surface. And so as we close with these hymns in response, I ask that you would draw from us a praise that brings you glory, a sacrifice that brings you honor. We are moved as we see now all the connections between what you instructed Moses to build and what Christ accomplished for us. And so help us through the eyes of the new covenant to be able to see these realities for what they are and celebrate that we no longer have to fast, but rather we get to feast as we will one day with the very lamb himself around his wedding table as his perfect, righteous, invited guests and children. In your name we pray, amen.